This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radio Therapy. It's great to have you listening in on this very fine Sunday morning. In fact, it's so fine a morning, Dr Anabolics, Sigmund McZiff and Kent have all done a runner. Yep, they've decided to take the morning off. But don't be dismayed. SK, Dr Rad, Jed and me, the tall man, have put together a veritable potpourri of stuff that will have you completely transfixed for the next hour. Ever seen the film Bug? Well, I have, and I need SK to explain it to me. It really is horrific. What's Rock Off MND? Well, it's happening next week in Geelong, and you need to be there. What about the most significant advances in neuroscience research during 2014-2015? Some might say that's an oxymoron, but I beg to differ. And have you ever heard of effective altruism? Hmm, interesting new concept going around. Plus, we have the very wonderful Dr Rad in the studio, and she's going to tell us what it's like to be a young doctor in our health system. So, all this and more here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Dr Rad, you're back. Now, you've been in abstentia for, what, nearly 12 months? Yeah, I've been out and about in the hospital world and ah. yeah, working on my career so sorry i've been a bit busy but <laughs> and 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 you're our you sort of we've been following your career since you were a medical student at deacon medical school yeah, yeah. so it's going to be fascinating to catch up with you and just see where you are and where you've got to and we're really interested to know about the health systems you've been through and and where you're emerging too but uh, and as that i say i get a message on my phone d lewis uh yeah okay right Good night. <laughs> that was fascinating, Paul, mate. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was just turning it off. Um, now, Rock Off MND. If you Google, um, if you even Google Rock Off uh, MND, this the the site will come up, and it's a website. And this is a music uh, a music event that's occurring in Geelong. I think at the waterfront campus of Deakin University uh, next week uh, on a Saturday night. You can buy tickets through there. You can give donations. Uh, it's run by the. Uh, it's been set up by the Simcoe family uh, in an effort to raise funds for ALS research and. Um, uh, Jen Simpico actually has uh, ALS MND and uh, they've really got together and organised themselves to um, uh, put together an event which they think and hope will grow uh, over time um, to get funds and pour funds into ALS research. Now for those people who haven't been listening regularly, uh, ALS slash MND toolman is... Uh, motor neuron disease. Yes, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. That's right, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So the Americans call it amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a very good pathological name because it describes it well. Um, and it's probably a subform. There are various forms. So under the umbrella of motor neuron disease, there are probably about well, six major uh, clinical um, phenotypes, we call them, that uh, where patients actually have this disease. Um, and 
it's it's something that um, you know people will have heard a lot about with the ice bucket challenge, which mm-hmm. I think I mentioned on a previous show raised four million dollars in Australia for ALS research, and in the United States it raised eighty four million dollars. So it was a worldwide phenomenon, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was talking to people the other day saying it's you know we've been in the uh, sort of in the dark room like little mushrooms for the past thirty years uh, thinking about and working on this disease. Disease, and this we seem to have some momentum and some public awareness of the disease uh, for the first time in 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 my practice life, uh, which which is good because it's only through coordinated uh, research efforts and there are a number of moves afoot worldwide currently to have the in, the research integrated not just within Australia but worldwide so whatever research is going on in Australia would be integrated into the European and British um, uh, research efforts as well so that all the data can be pulled and would be almost open source for researchers. That's quite unique in research circles isn't it because often research groups work in isolation and they jealously guard their own findings in order to be first to publication and so forth. How did that uh, insularity become overridden in a wave of goodwill in relation to motor neurone disease okay i think it's based in the premise that there is no understanding of this disease and there certainly is no effective temporizing treatment let alone cure so most researchers i think feel an overwhelming obligation um, to uh, share their work because nobody, ha- no one person's going to come up with the specky mark single answer and it's only through coordinated genetics neuroimaging and and uh, population health epidemiology studies that you're really going to be able to get this disease in the crosshairs and when it only affects three per 100,000 of population you need about 30 to 60,000 patients to study affect to to really effectively make a change and so that's not going to happen in anybody's lifetime uh, within any one country. So unless they pull the resources around the world, they actually won't get there. Unless serendipitously somebody uh, turns over a rock and says, well, there it is, uh, I never, you know, it, there's the cause. And that, that can happen, but I think that that behoves us not to wait for serendipity to find an answer to this disease. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to 3RRR, this is Radiotherapy, and we're going to talk about the film Bug. Yes, which is not an animated feature by Disney, but uh, in fact it's something quite the opposite. It's a sure psych- is. psychological horror film, Tall Man, and uh, I believe in your valiant attempts to keep up to speed, you tried to watch this film last night but couldn't sit through it. No, look, I... I... I don't know what it's about my psychological makeup, but I horror and me don't go together. I I'm a I'm a sook. I'll when leave you a card and we can talk about that. Okay. After the show, but, <laughs> I feel uh, like I should lay down now on the floor. <laughs> well, look, I, I stumbled across this film quite by accident myself. I'm a sort of fan of the horror genre and I was just trawling the internet and read a review of this film, so obtained a copy and had a look at it. And it's really quite an effective uh, psychological horror 
film. Uh, it's done by director William Friedkin, who's probably best known for his uh, direction of the original Exorcist film back in the early 1970s. So this guy knows how to direct an effective horror flick as well. Yeah. And despite it not having got a big cinematic release uh, back in 2006 when it was made, it's got a very good cast. Yes, it's it got uh, Ashley Judd in it. And if any of you are familiar with her work, you know, this is probably a standout performance of her career. She yeah. really gets into her character in this film. Double Jeopardy? Was she? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I can't recall any other stuff of hers yeah. off the yeah. top of my head. Yeah. Double Jeopardy. Uh, I remember her in that, and that was that was a great film. Very suspenseful. She's really but very not good horror. in this. <laughs> the, the co-stars in this film are a guy called Michael Shannon. The name probably doesn't ring a bell, uh, Tall Man, but uh, we've talked about a film that he was in before called Take Shelter, yep. a low-budget Canadian film which really shows the descent of the protagonist in that film michael shannon into a paranoid psychosis so this guy sort of carved out a bit of a niche for himself playing edgy disturbed characters in film and a supporting role in the film is taken by harry connick jr as well who over the past 15 years has really reinvented himself from a a crooner uh, best known for his seeing to uh, a guy who plays quite seedy psychologically disturbed threatening characters as well Uh, now the guy that you mentioned before he, he actually was in the Superman. He was the bad guy in one of the Superman movies. One of the remakes? Or yes, one of, one of the remakes of the Superman movies. He was a sort of the, the guy that came from Krypton. That, oh, okay. uh, like the was, evil General yeah. Zod or something. Yeah, that's yes, it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think, in fact, it was General Zod. <laughs> Zod 1, Zod 2, Zod, Zod 3. Two. Now, now, Bug is based on a play, so the screen adaptation of it, it's quite claustrophobic because it's all done in mm. a, a suite of three rooms, which we're led to believe are in a, a motel in rural Oklahoma. So it's a claustrophobically set piece i mean it looked so isolated and so and even that those scenes where they shot you know from the helicopter view of of sort of that little uh conglomerate of buildings in the middle of nothing and look social isolation in terms of the genesis of the particular psychiatric disorder or disorders which this film portrays is really quite an important fact so it was it was quite accurate in that sense as well and this film to me was unique in that it shows not only one but two different psychiatric disorders within the same film that are being shared by the the same people Mm. so this is where we're going with this you know it's Mm. quite economical in its uh, depiction of psychiatric (laughs) disorders in that sense it's almost a one-stop shop for psychopathology so this is one for your book absolutely yes now ashley judd in this film plays a a waitress who's stuck in a dead-end job in rural Oklahoma. She's trying to get over trauma uh, that arose following the disappearance of her young son several years previously, and she's degenerated into a bit of a spiral of uh, drug and substance abuse, and she lives her life, by and large, isolated in this motel room in fear of her ex-boyfriend. Mm. who she's had an abusive relationship with in the past and this is the harry connick jr character Mm. who we're told in the film has just been released from jail and we see early on in the piece that uh, ashley judd receives a number of phone calls where there's nobody at the other end and she's quite convinced that the person who's ringing her is this this ex harry connick jr and she's we get the impression she's almost moved to oklahoma and this uh, isolated lifestyle in order to hide from him but he's managed to track her down 
her only friend, it would appear, is uh, is a, a, another lady that she frequents bars with, and, and this friend introduces her one night to uh, a drifter called Peter Evans, which is the Michael Shannon character. And this guy's backstory is he claims to have been recently discharged from the US military. And he also tells us uh, that these phone calls that Ashley Judd has been uh, receiving have actually been made by the US government to her in anticipation of his arrival. So that's a bit odd and it sets him up as a as an unreliable narrator or an unreliable protagonist in this film, really. Fruitcake. Fruitcake, yes. But uh, Ashley Judd's vulnerable in this film. She's socially isolated. She has a few other supports. She's li- living in fear of this ex-boyfriend who's a, a violent criminal. She develops a fairly dependent relationship with the Michael Shannon character. And as their relationship develops and he moves in with her, he discloses that the military, during his period of service with them, actually infected him with a bug. And by a bug, I don't mean a computer chip, but some form of biological weapon, uh, an yeah. insect or colony of insects that live within his skin. And, and he starts. He states right from the outset that his interest in her is not uh, a sexual one. He, he wants a friend. He wants a friend, and al- although they do develop a, a sexual yeah. relationship, that's yeah. certainly not the cornerstone. Yeah. Uh, one almost gets the sense from watching the film that he hooks up with her because he figures that her isolated lifestyle might be a good cover from him for his yeah. from his uh, imagined persecutors. Yeah. So what psychiatric disorders are shown in this film. There's actually a, quite a rare psychiatric condition called delusional parasitosis. It's got one of these wonderful eponymous names, tall man named after the person who discovered it or who first described it. And uh, Carl Ekbom was a Swedish neurologist, believe it or not. Yes, they're very good neurologists. Hmm. He, he has another eponymous name attached to a syndrome, I believe, something called Willis-Eckbaum syndrome, better known as restless leg syndrome. Ah, restless legs, yeah. yes. yes so he was in on the ground floor on that disorder wow. as well. Wow. And, and That's made, real. I mean, restless legs is real. And it, respond, it responds, it's almost diagnostic. You use a drug called Rapinarol, and if you get that at the right dose for people, it changes their life. They, they lose their restless legs overnight, um, and it makes makes a, ma- a huge difference. Educate me here, because I use clonazepam for restless legs and a few yeah. other things occasionally, yeah. dopamine derivatives. What's yeah. this well, rapinarol? Well, it's the same thing. It's a, it, it basically has dopaminergic activity, but it's very directed for this disease. And rapinarol... Um, the, the reason it's not thrown around is it's it's not on the PBS, so you don't. It's not a subsidised drug, but people will pay for it. This is always the marker of something that really works. They don't care. They will pay for it because it really changes the the symptoms of restless legs, which is that just. You, you cannot settle. You, you, when you go to bed and during night, you constantly have to move your legs. They, they ache. They're uncomfortable. It's really a peculiar syndrome. It's it's quite uh, unusual. Not not very prevalent. Sometimes associated with pikers. Mm-hmm. So if you if you develop a pica, of, often it's due to um, iron deficiency anemia, and people uh, that have uh, are associated with these pikers pikeer being a fetish uh, crave to eat earth gravel dirt and ice 
bizarre, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Well, anyone interested in hearing more about restless leg syndrome and getting a private script, Tallman will uh, <laughs> put out his personal <laughs> phone number towards the end of the show. But back on to delusional yeah, yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. Which, you know, may in fact share uh, certain phenomenological similarities with restless mm. leg syndrome because mm. delusional parasitosis is the delusional belief that one is associated, one is infected or infested with parasites. And it's usually insects yeah. that they feel are either crawling on their skin or indeed burrowing underneath their skin and circulating in the bloodstream, Dr. Rat. And this feeling that they have is quite real to them, isn't it? Like that sensation that they have of this... Of this. They can actually feel things crawling underneath their skin and the sensation uh, is, is referred to as formication. Uh, formic acid is the substance that ants secrete and what gives uh, an ant sting, it's, it's irritant. But uh, this feeling of formication is said to uh, be reminiscent of the feeling of ants crawling underneath the skin, which might in fact produce restless legs yes. uh, in <laughs> some circumstances. There's, there's three supposed uh, types of delusional parasitosis. The, the first is called the primary delusional parasitosis, where these beliefs really are the only thing that the person has. So it's like a monosymptomatic delusion. There's no other psychotic stuff present. I believe that there's insects crawling under my skin, and that is the only thing that would mark me out as being in any way different from the rest of the population in my beliefs. Mm. There's a secondary delusional parasitosis where the same belief can arise in the setting of another psychiatric illness, most commonly schizophrenia, where there are other delusions present, one of which might be this uh, belief of infestation. You occasionally see it in very, very severe forms of depression as well. There's a variant of depression called Cotard's syndrome where people can come to believe that their internal organs are rotting, for example, and they're already dead. You know, they're very serious, distressing, mood-congruent delusions of death or dying or or of imminent disaster. And to believe that your uh, body is infested with bugs, typically maggots in that situation, feasting on your rotting innards is a bizarre delusion that we occasionally see in depression. So uh, are there other delusions? I'm just thinking of a case that ended very badly um, where uh, someone believed that there was something wrong with their uh, spinal cord and they were absolutely fixed and and had um, sensory dysesthesias in their body, uh, you know, abnormal sensations in their body um, that were, you know, really uh, distressing them. And the, the the idea that this was all coming from the spine, despite you know, repeated imaging, CSF analysis, all sorts of investigations to try and disprove that, were I mean, they, all those tests were negative. But the fixation on that that thought was so deep, um, couldn't penetrate it. And this was shifted in the absence of any other obvious psychiatric diagnosis at the time. Yes, and no, normal in functioning. That case, how would you distinguish it from uh, just a run-of-the-mill hypochondriasis, but with a particular bodily fixation? Well, I suppose the the severity of the disorder, um, the, the and and the amount of distress it caused to the point of suicide, mm-hmm. um, that sort of separated it off as, as something quite different, uh, but unshiftable. Unshiftable. And very reluctant to seek psychiatric help, presumably. Uh, repelled. Yes, repelled repelled by the thought of psychiatry. Yeah. 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 There is an organic 
form of delusional parasitosis as well. It's described in the literature that this condition can be substance-induced, so various drugs of abuse. And I, I remember an X-Files episode from back in the mid-90s where you know the pre-credits sequence was two uh, teenage boys who were inhaling methane gas that they'd actually obtained from cow dung, believe it or not. <laughs> they were inhaling methane gas, and then in response to that uh, sensory stimulus, one of the characters uh, developed the sensory and indeed the visual hallucination of uh, bugs crawling underneath his skin and yeah. took to himself with a knife in order to dig them out. Yeah. So the symptoms of delusional parasitosis, you know, patients perceive, whether this is in a, a, a somatic sense, just a sensation in their body, or a, more rarely you know, they have visual hallucinations, but they perceive that parasites or insects of some type are crawling on their skin or burrowing into their skin. They'll often take as evidence for this the presence of any sort of abnormal mark, whether it's yes. a skin lesion, a birthmark, a freckle or something, as proof that these uh, insects are digging into their skin and they'll examine their skin and clothing for any foreign particles. You know, they might misinterpret a skin flake on their clothing as being an insect cast off or a a, a dead insect or something. And they'll often uh, collect these uh, and there's there's a sign known as the positive matchbox sign when somebody comes to a dermatologist with a a little matchbox or a glass jar full of uh, belly button fluff and skin flakes that they are convinced are evidence that insects are crawling underneath them. Oh, damn, I've been outed. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, uh, delusional parasitosis is more common in women, uh, particularly women over the age of 40. And cases, when they're seen, it's it's very hard to get an idea of how prevalent the condition is because they're usually seen by dermatologists. Uh And much like the the case that you mentioned, tall men, they're very reluctant to even countenance that there might be a psychiatric component to their condition, despite this delusion being amenable to, uh, to treatment with uh, with psychiatric drugs and in that circumstance then would there be other um uh telltale uh symptoms that would suggest that that is caused by a psychiatric disease i mean i have real trouble here knowing chicken and egg Mm -hmm. because if, if a person's functioning normally or appears to be functioning society normally it's very and they've got such an enormous uh fixation on these these clinical symptoms it apart from the fixation everything else seems to be okay Hmm. And so is it really, uh, do they really have a psychiatric? Psychiatrists uh, address this difficulty by splitting off schizophrenia on the one hand, where yeah. typically there are multiple delusions, yes. uh, versus something called delusional disorder, where there's a, what's called a monosymptomatic delusion. So in other words, the only symptom Symptom. that the patient has is one fixed belief. Yeah. And a common, uh, other common examples of a delusional disorder might be, uh, something called erotomania where somebody develops a belief that somebody usually of high standing or a famous person is in love with them and they write them love letters and so forth Uh, another example would be delusions of infidelity where your only abnormal belief is a conviction that your partner is having an affair with somebody else and you go around looking constantly for evidence that that is the case so monosymptomatic delusions where the other features of schizophrenia are absent in other words people with delusional disorders 
sort of tend not to hallucinate. Yes. They tend not to have disorganised thinking or disorganised speech. All they've got is this one delusion. That distinguishes it from schizophrenia, where it's more likely that people will have multiple delusions as well as hallucinations and a degree of, of thought disorder as such. I mean, that's got to have a chemical structural basis. Oh, as as with many things, as with MND, ALS, tall man, <coughs> the, uh, <coughs> the neurochemical basis of schizophrenia and psychosis and any underlying neuroanatomical abnormality has yet to be clearly yeah. elucidated. And as we keep saying, this is where psychiatry and neurology are going to merge into the same specialty within the next 20 to 30 years. Once again, because they were originally the same specialty, of course, yes. and they've yeah. split and they're coming back closer together. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm warming towards you as we speak, tall man. <laughs> <laughs> the second psychiatric disorder that Bug claims to depict, or does depict actually, uh, it's a shared psychosis. It's a, a belief that was originally expressed by the Michael Shannon character that he is infested by bugs, yes. and it becomes picked up by the Ashley Judd character. And when you think about it, of all the possible delusions that might be shared between two people, if I were to say the words head lice to you guys in this studio and to the audience at home, uh, I can guarantee that a certain proportion of you right now will be feeling itchy and scratching your heads. <laughs> yeah. So if you're living with somebody who is under the constant belief yes. that they are infested by itchy lice or insects that are uh, inf infesting the environment, environment that's a belief which through common experience we know is relatively easy to transmit mm. and this uh syndrome of a shared psychosis it's got it's got a name within psychiatry it's it's a french term called folie a deux a madness of two mm. and it's pretty rare probably in 15 years of practice i've seen about three cases mm. and mm. they invariably arise in uh, the setting of a particularly powerful or strong relationship between the primary sufferer of these delusional beliefs and the person to which they are passed. Uh, usually there's quite a strong personality who's in the dominant situation within a relationship and that person develops the delusional belief and the person who's won down in the relationship, who's perhaps particularly vulnerable or alternatively particularly dependent yeah. on the primary sufferer, sufferer uh, gradually takes on these beliefs so it's usually in the setting of a very close relationship so people are living together uh, the couple to whom it relates are usually either physically isolated from other people and we saw this wonderful shot of isolation in yeah. rural oklahoma motel yeah. Yeah. or they're socially isolated yeah. and this is a very close dyad they were both fearful of other things ashley judd was fearful of her ex-boyfriend coming to get her the michael shannon character was fearful of the government so they both had reasons to, yeah. to reinforce that social isolation and uh, it's just bizarre how a, a, an entrenched bizarre abnormal belief for which there's no evidence can be taken on board by a person who's in a particularly vulnerable situation i guess the most recent clinical example i've seen would have been late last year i had uh, a person admitted to my ward who was clearly delusional uh, and had been for many years and had produced a 200 page document outlining grievances against the government and so mm -hmm. forth and that had been unquestioningly, unquestioningly accepted by his partner yes. who was from a different culture and quite socially isolated and quite dependent on him. Yes. 
on that background of many years illness which had been tolerated by the partner the primary sufferer developed what appeared to be a manic episode and became over talkative and over energetic and his partner took him to ed on the basis that uh, he'd suddenly become over talkative rather than because of any sense that these screeds of paranoid paper that he'd been producing for the past 10 years represented illness Mm. and we could not convince the partner of this patient that uh, there was another psychiatric illness present in that circumstance Mm. treatment of this rare condition uh, believe it or not uh, you only uh, focus treatment on the primary sufferer if you physically remove the dependent partner in that delusional dyad from their source of influence with time and with physical separation they can come to realize that these beliefs are abnormal so in other words you expose them to more mainstream beliefs in a setting that's supportive of them discovering the truth and the the delusional beliefs evaporate how how on earth would you manage that in in a normal social situation i mean you can't forbid somebody from associating with a delusional partner well you can't and in this particular case that i mentioned uh what we did was we treated the manic episode on its own merits yep and uh fortunately the the patient was quite happy to take medication uh, on our recommendation and you know we figured that uh the the risks of discharging the person to the care of their partner were were minimal and although this situation externally uh, to an objective observer wasn't satisfactory or or wasn't reasonable this couple had carried on a functional relationship for you know the past 20 years through through which at least 10 of it there'd been evidence of an illness and both seemed quite happy within that relationship so we took the view who were we to actually intervene on that there's perhaps a more dramatic case from uh, earlier in my experience as a registrar where i, I came across uh, a lady who had uh, fled from south australia and was uh, moving around victoria living from her car in the belief that aliens were chasing her yes. so she'd done a runner and was avoiding the aliens but in, in this particular case uh, she'd taken her 12 year old daughter with her and the belief that aliens were chasing her had transferred to the daughter as well and in that particular case there were more child safety issues Mm. at stake so we Mm. had to be more assertive in treatment there Mm. but you know if you're looking for a very good filmic uh, Mm. presentation of both delusional disorder in the terms of delusional parasitosis and this very rare syndrome of a shared psychosis bug is the film for you tall man if you can sit through it yeah look i'll go back to it and and with my belief suspended about the bugs (laughs) be reassured i'll see if i get through it this time it was uh, you know i'm I'm a sook i admit it i'm a sook and no no insects were actually harmed in the filming of this film (laughs) that's always worth knowing Three, triple. Ah. We've got Dr. Rad back with us, thank goodness. Um, and now, you best pricey just where you, you know, your pathway to this point because it's, uh, you know, you started off in, in a brand new medical school. So just yes. tell us what you did before, what you did as an undergraduate, and then what you've been doing postgraduate. Yeah, it's interesting because this now seems like such a long history of things to report back it, on. It's a mere blink it's for us. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I started with an undergraduate degree in science. I decided during that, while I was doing my honours research year, that maybe I wanted to 
attend medical school. Mm. So I applied f- for that as a postgraduate student yeah. and uh, got into the Deakin University medical program. Yeah. It was in its second year running in the year that I sort of joined it then um, and graduated from there in 2012 and have since been working as a junior doctor. So I'm now in my third year out working in the public health system and... What was the transition like from being a an undergraduate medical student yeah. to going to a, you know a large city hospital uh, as an intern? What how did was that an easy transition? Was that a smooth transition? Or was that like jumping off a cliff? It was petrifying, to be honest. I mean, there were I was already nervous about the job itself because mm. you know this is my first time that I'd be working full time. Mm in my whole life and it's a big job with a lot of responsibilities and you never are quite sure whether you've actually been prepared for it properly or not but on top of that I guess um, I was really anxious about being from one of the newest medical schools in Victoria and then going to one of the oldest hospitals in Melbourne and you know I was lucky enough to be one of the first people to be able to do that Um, and I guess I had a lot more to prove and so I was very very conscious of you know the work that I did and did did you feel that coming back to you did you did you sort of get like um oh yeah but you're from Deakin University uh whereas you know we are you know something quite special absolutely Mm. I cannot you know even (laughs) count the number of times that that happened um and it was all said in jest and it was all you know but I took offense to it oh you're from Deakin I didn't know you were actually allowed to practice once you graduated you make a mistake and it's oh Deakin graduate yeah (laughs) (laughs) no exactly but um I guess I took uh it was always the so it was always sort of the the um you know, old school consultants that had been educated at Melbourne University and then had gone through this hospital, you Mm. know, that had a sort of a legacy, Mm. you know, behind them. And and if it wasn't us, um, as I soon learnt, if it wasn't the Deakin students that, you know, were sort of being made fun of just before us, it was the Monash students that were copying it. So, you know, I think it's always (laughs) going to be the new kids on the block that sort of get it. And I'm sure the Monash students were so relieved that the, you know, spotlight was was off them a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's um, there's been quite a bit in the media just recently about you know the, this um, uh, a sense of bullying uh, of of resident staff by uh, senior consultants. Um, did, did I mean? Did you get a sense of any of that? I have been racking my brains trying to think of isolated examples or anything that might have happened along the way in my two and a half years of working life now to you know, whether this is actually true, whether I've I've actually experienced this. And I don't think I have. You know, I I really can't think of any isolated events where I felt bullied or pressured by my seniors. Um, And I think I've been fortunate in that sense, but I can think of examples of other people around me, you know, on Friday night drinks when we're at the pub, um, you know, of hearing stories of other things that have happened where I've thought, well, that's that's not on, that's not cool. Yeah. Not, not having experienced this yourself then, Dr Rad, I take it you didn't do an orthopaedic or a neurosurgical rotation. Yes. <laughs> I have done neither of them, yeah, yeah and that, that might that, that be, yeah, that it. might have been my saving grace. But, Ooh, you know, ouch. the thing the thing as well, though, is that I've been thinking about this more and more, and, yes, you, you know, you may get bullied by your consultants or your registrars or, you know, the senior doctor 
structures around you, but there's also bullying from nursing staff. And, you know, there's, there's, there's that sense of bullying. And I think I can probably relate to that more. Is that, is that, I think we need to be very careful when we use that term. Mm. So there's managing and there's direction. So when you're learning and you're uh, coming up through a system uh, where there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to do and there are high stakes on, um, you know, it, it matters if you make a mistake. It, it truly matters. Um, so in, in some people can get anxious and um, uh, worried and, and they, they transfer that by saying, look, you know, by making very rigorous demands on performance. Is, is that more of what is occurring rather than uh, actual, you know, deliberately sort of going after somebody and, and making them belittle them, humiliate them, those sort of things? Yeah, look, I think that's true. You know, there is definitely high standards that are required of us and, you know, um, and I guess the incidents that I can think of, if I really, really rack my brains, you know, are... Um, uh, you know, could be interpreted in that way, I guess, yeah, that they, you know, th- it is about, you know, coaching and making sure that, you know, that you are able to do the job and that you're getting the supports that you have. But I guess the one thing that comes to mind is the best piece of advice I ever got before starting internship, which is that to be a good intern and to be a good junior doctor, you basically have to have no shame. And, yes. you know, and I feel like if you go in with that attitude... And it's easier for some people than for others. Yeah. And when you say that, no shame, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean? Do you mean no ego? I mean no ego. I mean no shame in terms of asking what exactly do you mean by that? Can you repeat yourself? Actually break that down for me. What do you mean by, you know, go and make this referral? Like how do I actually do that? Yes. To not act if you don't know, just to ask. Because as a junior doctor, you have that saving grace. No one expects you to know anything. Like, this is the thing that I've realised after three years of working. Like, you know, there's more pressure now for me to know things than there is in my first year of training when... Because you're being asked. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So I think if you go in with the right attitude in terms of you know, um, with what's expected of you and, and where, where your limitations are. And, and these are the things that they look for in medical school interviews, you know. Yes. Do you know your limitations? Do you, are you do you have an ego? And are you going to pretend and fluff your way through something like as though you know it rather yes. than, you know, go and find the right sort of things to... Mm. But nonetheless, notwithstanding that and having those intrinsic abilities within yourself, that still, it, 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 it's depressing, it's still anxiety-provoking for you in your professional life. How did you deal with that? I mean, or you just dealt with it. I mean, yeah. were there days when you came home and thought, mm, this is this is too tough? Absolutely. Yeah, there have been. And they've been... The thing as a junior doctor is that you rotate through every three months into mm. a new rotation. And I think more than the days of, you know, um, feeling like that, I think they've been rotations of feeling like that. And then there have been other ones where I've been completely myself and my friends have noticed it, my partner's noticed it, my mm. family's noticed it. Mm. So I think you take on the stress of, you know, the job that you're doing. Mm. And I've definitely had a change in my personality when mm. I'm when I'm under the pump at work, you know. Yeah. Can I ask which rotations you found most stressful in that regard and, and were they more stressful because that particular branch of medicine just seemed foreign to you? It wasn't something you were as familiar with or you had less interest in? What was it that made a rotation particularly yeah, so bad? It was the first that I ever did, which was colorectal surgery. So I think that was a combination of me being brand new um, and really keen to do a good job and not really getting the feedback 
that you know I think I needed to whether I was doing a good job um, and then also obviously you know it being so foreign to me it's not an area of medicine that I'm interested in um, and then and then later on in my in my training it was the a cardiology rotation and I think that was just because of the uh, I guess the intensity of of what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis um, and and the responsibilities that come with that job so yeah that was that was quite mm. full on. It is interesting how different areas of medicine fit with your personality. I mean, I, I did four years of general medical stuff before ending up in psychiatry, and the only job that I actively disliked was anaesthetics because this uh, idea of uh, 99% boredom, 1% panic, I just lived in anticipation of the 1% panic and couldn't <laughs> relax at any stage okay, during the rotation. Boredom, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So what have you... So you're now two years post graduate you've done two years in a in a major quaternary hospital and you've made this year a different career choice what have you done yeah I've sort of well last year I've sort of came to mind that you know my area that I want to pursue is probably general practice Mm. so I applied for the training program and have got in successfully Mm. and this year I'm sort of trying to um achieve a couple of diplomas in some areas that are going to be most useful to me as a general practitioner. So, Mm. you know, in speaking to my mentors and other general practitioners, they've all said, as a female GP, you're going to see kids and women's the Mm. most. Mm. And Mm. so you should be pretty good at that. And that's not sexist. That's just the natural order of things. It is, exactly. And, you know, and I see myself when I go to my GP, you know, asking for the female doctor for certain issues as well, you know, is just a comfort sort of thing. So if there is one available, I will always ask. And how much of what you've decided to do, how how much did you take into account your personal lifestyle of what you want to, how you want to live your life? That has definitely been a huge consideration. I think that I've had to look at the rotations that I've done and how I felt during them, um, how much of my life... Um, in terms of percentage-wise, did work take up? Yes. Um, and I think that I've had to reason out and think, well, you know, what do I love and what do, what am I good at and where am I going to get my most satisfaction from work? But then also um, how much of my overall life am I willing to for work to take up of you know and i think for me like i've been able to literally quantify it to 50 to 60 percent and and then looking at some of the you know options available to me general practice really fitted in with that amongst other reasons of course but Do, do you think there's a difference between female doctors and male doctors in any of those decisions that you make or do you think it's exactly the same the 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 imperatives for both genders are exactly the same i wish i wish that it was exactly the same but it, they are not you know and i'm a 29 year old female now that has to also consider family life and how i'm going to fit that all in and and you know and i know that males obviously have these considerations as well but my friends from med schools are all 27 28 year old males who are pursuing surgical sort of careers and it's not going to matter that they're 36 or 37 when they finish because they can just work their way through it makes no difference biologically to them whereas I've got to stop and think and you know and of course I've got the support um, of everyone around me if I did want to pursue the same thing but Mm. uh, I think it's more important that I have a choice to and I've chosen not to Mm. yeah Mm. but I don't think it's the same no I don't and I don't think it's the same in any 
profession really like i speak to my friends that are in you know in commerce and in economics and things and they're all sort of making the same sort of considerations yes. they're all up for promotions at the moment yes. they've been working for the last 10 years and they've got to really decide if that's something that they want to pursue or whether they need to stop where they're at because these other things are coming up you know biological pressures did you then the question comes down to did you see the medical profession as supporting a woman specialist in one of those areas where um, you know they're going to be doing their training in into their thirties. Did you did you look at those specialties and say actually I could fulfil my 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 wishes to have a family and and do that specialty training, or did you look at those programs and say they just do not support women mm. in those programs? I think uh, so. The biggest distinction is medical or surgical, you know, yes. and I think. Uh, as a medical student as an, as, and as a junior doctor, the medical side of things, there are so many women that you can turn to. I can think of so many examples of women that I work with on a day-to-day basis that have finished their training, that have done it through their 30s, and that all have families now yes. as well. So there's heaps of examples readily available to me and also people for me to turn to to ask for advice you know, yes. from in the medical field. So I've never felt that that's not achievable if that's what I wanted to pursue. But I have to say, in the surgical field, there are so many less women that you can turn to that are leaders and that, you know, you can turn to in terms of as a role model that you can perhaps speak to about that. And that's just because there aren't that many female surgeons. And there aren't that many, you know, and I think the statistic is something like there's 9% of the surgeons in Australia at the moment are female. Mm. That's nothing Mm. compared to physicians or general practitioners Mm. where it's up to 30 or 40%, you know, so there is no one to turn to in that way. But also I've got to, you know, keep in mind that I've never been interested in that. So maybe I haven't looked for a mentor in that area. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's something that obviously the surgeons themselves are going to have to address because um, that that gender imbalance, uh, it's not, I mean, you know, 50% of medical uh, students are female. And yep. uh, but as you go through the, those sort of specialties that are very sort of um, uh, the, you, you know job sharing doesn't appear to be part of the, uh, the model. curriculum yeah. the model and yeah. they're, they're going to ha- this does need to be redressed yeah and 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 I think you can I'm, I'm going to say it mm. surgery is the worst mm. uh, yeah. they are a bastion of a, a different model that's been in place for a hundred years and they don't want to change or they yeah. don't see the need to change yeah mm. and and it is and it is difficult for me because we finished medical school and i can if i think of all the girlfriends that i had then mm. i reckon 50 percent of them all wanted to be surgeons at that stage yes. and for some reason now three years down the track everyone's chosen another specialty yeah. so that's a bit alarming because they were really ready to go you know but so so something happens in those two or three years where people change their mind and that's concerning have you had any feedback from those friends as to exactly what it was in their case um i think it's lifestyle becomes a really really important sort of thing um and and i think the long hard slog of the surgical training program in terms of not only the years that it takes to to get on to the program but then also you know the years that it takes of doing night shifts and cover shifts and operating till 4am in the morning and these are not conducive to having a life outside of medicine but also to 
you know, having a lifestyle that, you know, that you would want mm. for yourself. So, Given that those are the realities of practising mm. as a surgeon, though, you know, people become ill or in need of an operation at unpredictable yeah. times, do you think there's ever going to be scope for the situation to change in surgical training? I think... I think that there is room to move in terms of how they are rostering people and, uh, and you know, and, of course, a hospital is a 24-hour service. Of course, there needs to be someone there the whole time, but it doesn't have to be the one person there for 24 hours yep. or for 50, you know, so there needs to be more flexibility so that we are, you know, it's it's a... We know that we have to do shift work as a, as a junior doctor. That's part of the thing, you know, but I think it's that in surgery it's a little bit harder to... Um, to be flexible with those hours and to, you know, be able to pick those hours if you have a young family or something like that. Possibly because there's inadequate numbers of surgical trainees because they tightly control the... Uh... Oh, that's a whole other... Co- let's yes. not even go there. Let's not even go there. On next week's Look, show. Yeah. But the million-dollar question. Yes. The million-dollar question is, are you happy that you became a doctor? I could not see myself doing anything else. Yeah. So it's it's fulfilled a lot of the ambitions you had as a person, and absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think it makes yeah. up a big part of who I am today, and yeah. so yeah, I'm very very lucky that I found that. Yeah. <laughs> ah, very good. Uh, so uh, to hell with neurosciences. We're not going to discuss it <laughs> as usual. But I did have a very interesting thing on criminality and frontotemporal dementia, which I'll bring to the next show, which is next week, and we have uh, uh, Professor Sharon Lewin. Um, uh, coming in an inv- infectious diseases specialist. She's probably the preeminent infectious diseases specialist in the country. Um, a great role model. For me, it just time to sign off. SK, we're back next week. We are indeed. Looking are. forward to it. And Dr. Rad, lovely to have you in the studio as always. Thanks for having me. Okay. See you later. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.